through the 11th chapter of Corinthians as we're working our way through that wonderful book. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 16. I encourage you to keep the Bible open on your lap as we work our way through this naughty text, K-N-O-T-T-Y. In these next four chapters, chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, Paul's dealing with worship. That's the overall and major point of these four chapters, worship of the living God. And he eventually gets to this, their specific question, because as you know, Corinthians is in response to first what he heard for six chapters, and then questions they were writing to Paul to ask about. And he's going to get to their specific question on worship in chapter 12, that is uh, spiritual gifts and the use of spiritual gifts in worship. But before he does, he wants to lay some foundation. In these four chapters, he, he surrounds that issue with the foundation of worship principles. At the end of chapter 14, we're going to see as a bookend to our, our passage today, that uh, that is going to talk about the orderliness of worship. So we're going to start talking about that today and finish at the end of chapter 14. And then in the middle is that large section on spiritual gifts where he's going to answer their direct question. Before that, he's going to talk about how to administer the Lord's Supper, proper administration there of communion. And our text today, which is foundational principles of worship. I want you to look with me and listen as we read God's word, starting in verse 2 of chapter 11. Paul says, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them along to you. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since He is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does it not, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if that a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Commentator David Jackman 
states it well when he writes, there are two major difficulties frequently encountered in Bible study, too. Some passages are hard to understand, so they engage the mind. Other passages are hard to accept, so they engage the will as we try to respond to them in obedience. But this passage has both. As we approach it, we need to do so in humility and dependence on God, that he will be pleased to make the message clear and give us grace to put it into practice. Well, I was comforted when I read that this week as I struggled with this text. It's one of the hardest sections in Scripture, actually, to exegete well, to interpret and to imply. It has Greek difficulties, the meaning of the Greek word head, kephale. What does that mean? It has literary difficulties. Paul is mixing metaphors here. It has historical difficulties. What in the world are we supposed to do with covering our head and hair length? Is Paul setting down a universal principle for his church or a cultural historical? It has gender difficulties, the role of men and women, headship and submission, which presses on our personal biases as well as our cultural biases. And as we wade in, I want to caution us not to let all those things distract us of what Paul is trying to do, which is to lay down three basic, foundational, universal principles for God's church. Three freedoms, as I am calling them, for the churches throughout the ages. And the first freedom we come to is freedom to worship without distraction. Freedom without distraction. This is the hair length and head covering issue that is the thread throughout this text. And over the centuries, people have gotten sidetracked on what that all means. Whether Paul is mandating head coverings for women or hair length for women and men. In fact, some churches have split over this very issue on whether women should have long hair or cover their head, which I agree with the majority of commentators that say that that is a very superficial reading of this text. If that's what you get out of this text, I want to encourage you, you need to go a little deeper. Paul is using specifically first century Corinthian culture and that issue to explain to the church throughout all ages that the gospel actually gives incredible freedom in worship. The gospel gives incredible freedom. We have to remember, and you have to understand the context again, into which Paul is writing. The Jews are coming from a very prescribed worship, aren't they? You do this and this, and this, and this only. They're coming from a prescribed worship experience. However, the Gentiles are coming from a very sensual and very structureless worship experience. And so you have these two groups coming together in the Corinthian church, and it's causing issues. 
So what was normal and expected for one group is terribly distracting for the other group. And what is normal and expected for the other group is driving the first group crazy. And so they write to Paul and they talk and they ask him about worship. And these issues all come together under the head coverings and hair length in Corinth. Each culture had different traditions and views. Each culture had different understandings of what certain hair styles even meant and conveyed. So the situation was some married women in the church in Corinth were discarding tradition and wearing their hair up and or covering their head during worship. In the name of freedom, they were wearing their hair down around their shoulders, which meant, which telegraphed to some that they were available. That's how single women wore their hair. And so these married women were wearing their hair down, and it was terribly distracting for people. It would be like a married woman coming to the back of the church and publicly taking their wedding ring off and sitting down. We would go, what's going on here? Conversely, in the name of freedom, some women were wearing their hair up or even cutting their hair, which meant telegraphed to some that 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 person, that woman was an adulteress. Many adulteresses would have their hair cut. Or reminding others of the temple prostitutes they would frequent in their pagan years. Additionally, some Jewish men in the name of freedom were covering their heads and some Greek men were growing their hair long, totally free to do that, as was the practice in pagan worship. Perhaps they were doing this even as an early seeker-sensitive movement. You know, bring the culture into the church so that the people feel comfortable. We don't know that, though. What was going on is is that this newfound freedom that people were finding in Christ-centered worship was providing for a terrible distraction in the church. People were getting all kinds of mixed messages. People were distracted from worship and causing all kinds of disharmony in the church. Now, for you and me, head coverings and hair length don't mean anything. They really don't. If somebody were to cut their hair, wear their hair long, cover their head, not cover their head, not a big deal. But let me give you, so that we can enter into the angst, let me give you a possible scenario or two here. Imagine if some young Christian women began coming to our worship service, worshiping the living God, loving Christ, but they wanted to bear their midriff. And perhaps they, a couple of them had a belly button piercing or a back tattoo, and they sat in the frontish of the church. How distracted would you be? Or, in the summer, some of the, our visitors start coming in their bikini tops and short shorts before they go to the beach. How distracted would you be in worship? Or, some young Christian men who love Christ, 
but who come from a goth culture, come with their full black makeup and black lipstick and black hair and start praising God. How distracted would you be? I know that if that happened, there would be a line on Monday at my office. (laughs) Now, Paul is not mandating how people should wear their hair or cover their head. What Paul's really concerned about here is that the worship of the living God is being disrupted. And he has to deal with that issue. In your newfound freedom, Paul is is putting forth the universal principle is don't distract from the worship of Christ. Don't do anything that will distract from worshiping God. Why? Because worship trumps everything. Let me say that again. Worship trumps everything. If you don't get anything else from reading Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you have to understand that it's all about God seeking worshipers. And worship is number one. We see that in Exodus as we uh, read in the eighth chapter. Moses is called to go to Pharaoh and And God, Yahweh, tells Moses to tell Pharaoh to let my people go so that they can go out in the desert and worship me. The reason for the whole exodus is worship. Think of the care and detail and time and effort God took when he gave the blueprints to the tabernacle, the portable temple that they were to worship him in. Think of the chapter upon chapter in Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy that God put in their hands so that they could build that tabernacle and worship him. Think of the focus on the temple worship as you read 1 and 2 Kings. Think of the significance that God put on worship in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Why why did he bring them back from exile at all? So that they could worship him. Think of the importance of building temple and rebuilding the temple put in Zechariah and Haggai. Think of the prominence given to worship correction in the books of Amos and Micah and Malachi. I mean, read the Gospels. What came to mind is when Jesus met that woman at the well in in John chapter 4, and he tells her, listen, I'm here so that people can come of all stripes and all colors to worship me in spirit and in truth. That's why I've come. Think of the future with the book of Revelation as you read that book. The whole purpose of redemption is brought into clear view with the image over and over and over again of people worshiping God. That's our purpose. That's why we were created. We're going to worship something. We're hardwired worshipers. And if you're not going to worship God, something will fill that vacuum. We've talked over and over again here about the things that fill that vacuum. It can be as simple as 
as power or position. It can be as 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 easy and, and plain as finances and money. It can be looks. It can be acceptance. It can be pleasure and sex. It can be anything if it's not focused on God, you'll fill it. Worship is so central and primary to God's redemptive purpose. I love Richard Baxter. He's one of my favorite Puritans. I have a, a quote by him that reminds me every week how important the preaching of God's word is in worship. He writes, Preach as though never sure to preach again a dying man to dying men. That's how important this is. So there has to be little distraction as possible. And we've worked hard over the years in our fellowship to do this. I hope you recognize that. Very early on, this is a funny story, but it has a purpose. Very early on, on this table, we had candlesticks. Some of you that have been here a while remember this. And they were supposed to be lit every week. You know, so as the worship service is going on, there's two candles lit. But in my first year, many times people would, you know, in the busyness, forget to light them. And as I'm leading worship or beginning to preach, somebody would sneak up here with a lighter and and light this one and then light this one. And I thought, oh, that's silly. We're getting rid of those candlesticks. That's just a distraction. Many of you may remember the clock that used to tick. It had a very large tick during prayer. Tick, 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 tick. Literally that loud. Tick, tick. Where's your focus? When is this prayer time going to stop? <laughs> We're leaving the, the tithe collection up front. How distracting is that check that is up a little? And can you see the amount that's written on it? Or I wonder how much is in there. I wonder how much you took in this week. Let me think about that. Oh, what is he saying again? You'll notice very few bulletin inserts. Today is an exception. I don't know about you when I go to churches and I get those Habitat for Humanity and Compassion International and this and that and the other. You have five inserts. You're tempted to go, what's going on? I did a funeral a couple weeks ago and they had a casket here. And I ask that the casket be closed at the beginning of the worship service. Who's thinking about the gospel I'm preaching when there's a dead body right in front of me? Nobody. As few distractions as possible. Because we are a distractible people. We are, you know, a car goes by that still has the studs on their tire, and we hear it, and we start thinking, they should take the studs off those tires. It's getting to be... Nothing should distract us from our critical purpose of worshiping the triune God. That's Paul's point in this whole head covering and hair length issue. So be free. So use your freedom that the gospel gives you in worship to be free to express yourself. But consider the distraction that it might be to your brother and sister in worship. Second 
foundational principle that Paul wants to exhort is our freedom in worship. Just our freedom in worship. And this has to do specifically with women. Look with me at verses 4 and 5 of our text. Paul writes, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. I hope you picked up on what Paul is saying there. If you're distracted by the head and hair thing, you missed it. What he wrote there would have rocked the world back then. Men, pray, prophesy, no problem. Women, in worship, praying and prophesying, that they would have stopped reading right there and had a big discussion. What, what, do you, what does he mean? Does he mean that women can now talk in worship? Does he mean women can now pray, participate in worship? That's exactly what he means. The first century mind and culture, women were thought of as less than, absolutely less than. They were thought of as property of the man. They were not afforded many rights and many restrictions on what they could do in worship. They could not speak. They had to sit separately from the men behind a veil. They were not even counted as members of the synagogues. And they had to wear their hair a certain way. In pagan worship, they were the temple prostitutes that the men would use to for their own for their own fun. And then the gospel comes along. They're given full rights. They're given status, acceptance, full members of Christ's church. They're given the ability to participate in worship. They're given the ability to have a home church like Lydia in Acts. You know what we're studying back there, the Philippian church? It started because Lydia started a home church, a woman. In Christianity, they're given total equality. That's, that's what Paul is laying out in verses 11 and 12. I hope you picked up on that. The Lord, however, in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of a woman. For as a woman came from a man, so also a man is born of a woman. And everything comes from God. Paul is relating that there is equality and interdependence in the sexes that was totally different from the first century culture. Women had equal value before God. They were not less than in God's eyes. And by the way, Yahweh meant this from the very beginning. I hope you understood what we read in our public reading of Scripture. Male and female, he made them. That's the image of God. Our sin so easily twists and perverts that. So Paul writes again and again to the churches, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian or Scythian, male or female in Christ. Christ is one. Christ is all in all. 
He's constantly putting it out to the churches because it was such a new and revolutionary concept. So it's interesting that what our culture is obsessed with obtaining is actually given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Equality, value, equality. And Paul wants women to realize this and rejoice in their newfound freedom in Corinth and in their equality that the gospel gives them. I think that's the... There's a corrective. We're going to get to this in chapter 14 where Paul says, you're probably all thinking of it already, where Paul says women should be silent in church. That's the corrective of this pendulum swing that was going on in Corinth. Oh, we have all this freedom? Well, then Paul says, no, hold on. There's order in worship. They're not to be separate, but to pray. They're not to be absolutely silent, but to speak and participate as members of God's people. Yet with this newfound freedom in worship, Paul is careful to remind them and us of the last foundational freedom. And that is, there is freedom, but with distinction. Yes, women are of equal value in God's eyes, should be in our eyes, but there is a difference in function. And that's what verse 3 is trying to explain there. Paul says, now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Stephen Um writes, the freedom that God, God's grace engenders is paradoxically characterized by order. And that's what Paul is trying to express here. Yes, there's incredible freedom in worship, equality and value, but there's order in God's church. There still remains a function of gender and distinction in God's church. Totally equal in value, but different in function. If you're taking notes, I'd write that down. Totally equal in value, but different in function. And that's the universal truth that Paul writes in verse 16. We have no other. This is the practice in all the churches. Now, the word head here is what comes into view in verse 3, this kephale idea. It has three meanings in Greek. It means source, like of a source of a river. It means head of the body, like your head, your actual head. And it also can mean authority, like in the state's authority or the school's authority. There's a lot of disagreement in this area, a lot of discussion on which meaning Paul is using here. But I would ask us to read the plain text. What's Paul trying to get across here in the plain reading of the text? Paul's communicating some sort of order, isn't he? He's giving us some order. Some sort of humble order in submission. God, Christ, man, woman. Or reverse, woman, man, Christ, God. He's giving some order here. And I want you to notice that he's borrowing from the economy of the Trinity. He's borrowing from the Trinity. What does that order look like in the Trinity? And it shows us two things. One is that even in the Godhead, there is humble order and submission. Christ submits to God the Father, doesn't he? 
I mean, that's what we read in the Gospels, right? He even says in chapter, uh, he says in chapter 4 that my food, Jesus says, is to do the will of my Father. So there's some humble order and submission. God sending the Son, the Son sending the Spirit. And secondly, there's no negative meaning to the word submission here. How can it be negative if Christ himself humbled himself and submitted to God? We put that baggage on it. That's not the baggage that it comes from. And that's the pattern that Paul intends. Christ willingly, joyfully submits to God the Father, so men should joyfully and willingly submit to Christ. As men willingly, joyfully submit to Christ, so women should willingly and joyfully submit to men. Or to explain it another way, in verse 7, Paul says this, A man ought to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. So Paul wants women to express their freedom and equality in worship, but in a God-honoring way, namely through headship and submission. Now, the best way to understand this is through the relationship that we see this in and experience this in the most intimately, and that is marriage. That's the most accessible way I know to understand this relationship. And since the church is modeled off the home, it only makes sense to briefly use that as a parable, if, as you, if you will, and apply it loosely to the church. I want to read you what John Piper writes about headship and submission in his book. He says, Headship is the divine calling for husbands to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. That's headship. He defines submission as the divine calling for women to honor and affirm the husband's leadership and to help carry it through according to her gifts. Now, this is not a sermon on marriage, but on worship. So how do these definitions work its way out in our worship? Well, Headship in the church is the divine calling for men to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the church. I think that's what we see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 with male elders. What does this mean? What does it look like? That's the question I get in premarital counseling all the time. Just tell me what to do. And I'll tell you what I tell them. The male is primarily responsible for God, before God, for the spiritual atmosphere of the home. He takes primary responsibility before that. So too in the church. They're to lead and not be passive in the home. So too in the church. They're to lead the way Christ led in the home so too in the church. What does that look like? I'll tell you what it looks like. Putting other people's needs before 
our own. Sacrificing desires and wants to sacrificing our reputations. Considering the church before our own agenda. Men are to spiritually protect the flock. That's what we see in 1 Timothy 3. Men are to provide the spiritual food for the church. That's why men preach. And then submission. Submission in the church is the divine calling for women to honor and affirm male leadership and to help carry it through according to their gifts. What does this look like? What does it mean? Well, women are to put their gifts to work in the church. Equal in value, different in function. Newfound freedom in Christ with some functional boundaries. Women are to help to make the male elders work a joy and not a burden. That's what we see in Hebrews 3.17. In his book, again, John Piper writes, and the book's name is, by the way, Momentary Marriage, he writes, Submission is the disposition to follow a husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. Submission is an attitude that says, I delight for you to take initiative in our family. I'm glad when you take responsibility for things and lead with love. I don't flourish when you're passive and I have to make sure the family of God works. In other words, women are to willingly and joyfully honor this God-given order in the church. Is it really possible? How do you do that? What does that look like? How can submission be something your will wants to do when the heart instantly wants to go the other way? How can submission become a want to instead of a have to? Kathy Keller in her book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, writes this, and I think it's foundational. Justice in the end is whatever God decrees. So whether or not you're able to see justice in divinely created gender roles depends largely on how much you trust God's character. If you trust, if trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust with the bark on Christ's wounds, the thorns pressed into his brow, your name on his cracked lips. And if God can be trusted, then gender roles with all of God's gifts to human beings are to be rejoiced and enjoyed, not endured and resented. If this text, and it's a big if, if this text has been exegeted correctly, and men and women in God's church are of equal value, yet different in some functions, the question that must be answered is, do you trust that what Christ has laid down here is good? Has he earned your trust enough that what he says here is not meant to harm you and keep you down? I mean, that's what you have to 
reflect on is the gospel. Did Christ earn your trust enough when he left paradise, comfort, ease, perfect relationship to come and be born in a stable? Did he earn your trust enough by living the perfect life on your behalf, living perfectly? Do you realize that that was not easy for Christ? It was really hard. Think about resisting temptation yourself. He went through that. It's hard. Has he earned your trust by allowing himself to be accused and not answering? To be allowing himself to be called dirty and guilty and not responding? Allowing himself to be mocked and spit upon and not retaliating? Has he earned your trust enough by willingly going to the cross? That's what this week is all about, guys. That's why I opened with it. He, he knew what was coming down the pike. And he said, no, I love Blake enough to do this. Put your own name in there. And he took my punishment. I should have endured that pain and taken that penalty of death, but he took it for me. He earns my trust. Has he earned your trust by dying in your place? By earning heaven and yet offering it to you? If he's earned your trust, and this text is exegeted correctly, are you willing to accept it? That headship and submission are good. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And pray, Spirit, that you make it clear to us. In Jesus' name, amen.